You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Uh, welcome to Sojourn. I'm just going to, I tend to gesticulate, so I'm going to move this. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It is uh, my joy and honor uh, to proclaim the truth of God's Word from First uh, Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 this morning. If you're a guest, just want to reiterate uh, the welcome that was given to you by Clayton. Really do believe um, that the church is a people to belong to uh, before it is an event to attend, and so would love to get to know you in any one of those contexts. Um, myself and some of our leadership will be also in the gallery at the conclusion of the gathering, so um, would love to just meet you and be able to put uh, a name to a face, especially if you filled out that uh, Connect card. So um, thank you for being here uh, this morning. Uh, this morning we uh, we get to introduce a, a new sermon series. So we uh, spent some time in uh, the book of Job over the past eight or nine weeks or so, and this morning we're uh, taking a, a bit of a shift and uh, what we're entering into is uh, essentially what we call um, our, our annual vision series uh, in which we revisit um, all of our, our, our hopes and our, and our dreams together, um, those things that we believe the Lord has sort of uniquely um, called us to do and be as His people in this particular um, local church. And so we'll be walking through a four-week series called Life Together. Um, uh, and so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this time and that... Uh, uh, but, but what I want us to do, just sort of before we walk into the details of this, is, is be reminded, right, that while this is a vision series and while we will talk sort of specifically about sojourn and what it, what it is we feel like the Lord, again, uniquely is sort of calling us to do, we want to be clear, and I specifically want to be clear, um, in saying that this is not an attempt to stroke our collective ego um, as as sojourn. Um, I think we've said this regularly, and I, I like the phrasing, so I'm going to say it again, and maybe, we'll, maybe it'll catch on. But um, I, I really and truly, I've seen ministry in all different contexts all, all over the world. I've had the great fortune of, of traveling other places. And so let me just tell you this. Uh, the way that sojourn does things is not the way, okay? It's not. Um, but it is a way, uh, and it is our way. And so here, here's what we want to do. We want to unashamedly proclaim that we think the Lord has called us in and through His Word and by His Spirit to operate in a, in a certain way that is appropriate for the context that we belong in, while also saying that we are a part of this larger body of God's people that comprises people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, and, and, and a various amount uh, of ministry models and ways of sort of uh, being faithful to what it is that God has called all of His people to, all right? So let's just be uh, very upfront and clear about that, right? Our, our mission statement is, is this. We are joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption, right? So that's, that's all-encompassing. We're nothing new. We're nothing novel. But we are trying to be faithful, self-aware role players in the ways that God has called us uh, to do those things. And we want, the reason that we talk about it on a Sunday in particular, the reason that we're going to talk about this from the pulpit where it's like we should be talking about Jesus, right, not about sojourn, is because we want and we desire and we want to show how it is that our theology, how it is that our thinking about Jesus and about what God has done informs our collective practices. 
So then what we begin to realize is that what orders us and what structures us and what draws us together is not the name of sojourn, but rather what it is that God would have us to do and be um, as a people. And so the sign on the building could change, but we wouldn't. And so let's pray uh, towards that end as we um, walk into 1 Peter this morning. Father, thank you so much, uh, Lord, again, just for the opportunity to be gathered together as your people. Um, Lord, the fellowship of the saints is a great and generous gift from you. And Lord, we know that we have brothers and sisters who right now um, are unable to experience that. Lord, there are brothers and sisters in parts of the world where they are imprisoned or where they are um, gathering, Lord, illegally. Um, And Lord, we we don't have that this morning. We have the great joy of gathering and freely expressing um, that you are great and that you are good and that you have drawn us together. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world, but we also pray for our time together here this morning, that your spirit um, would speak to us clearly through your word. Um, and Lord, that uh, whether this is our first time or whether this is our hundredth time, that we would know that it is the same brotherhood the same sisterhood, the same fellowship uh, that we have uh, together because of Jesus. And so we thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning, um, we're going to talk about this idea that we are saints. This idea that we are saints. So uh, when we talk about our life together as sojourners at this particular local church, one of the things we want to say about each other and to each other, and that is true about us collectively, is that we are saints. Now, some of you might hear that word, and and maybe it conjures up some some different images, and so we're going to have to maybe give a little definition to that, especially in light of the fact that, you know, maybe just a week ago, uh, Mother Teresa was canonized in the Catholic Church as a saint. And so you may be wondering, is, is that what he means? Um, and the short answer is, is no. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Peter um, for a good definition of what it means for us to be saints. And so here's what we're going to do. Uh, I am going to spend some time with you guys in 1 Peter chapter 1 because it sets up for us where we're going in chapter 2. And so this is what 1 Peter tells us a saint is, what we are. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And if you'll skip down to verse 13, then it says this, Therefore, so because God has rescued us, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am. I'm holy. Now, in short, in short, the word saint means holy. That's all it is. In fact, throughout the New Testament, you'll see these letters that are written to the churches will often be addressed, meaning in the, in the first verse or two, it will say, to the saints at 
blank, to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Galatia, right? Or Paul will describe these people as he's talking about them with great care and concern. He will say that, I, I, I love the saints. I love your care and concern for other saints. He, so he uses this term, and Peter uses this term, to encompass anyone who would believe in, call upon the name of Jesus Christ, anyone who has experienced His saving work, is a saint. And we are to be holy. That sainthood is given to us. This should sound fairly familiar uh, if you were here last week. But essentially, that's what it comes down to. Our sainthood is our holiness, and our holiness is something that is bestowed upon us, Right? That's what Peter is blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for in verse 3. This rescue, this redemption, this sainthood, this holiness that has been bestowed upon us. Now there are four things that um, we need to know about holiness that we'll see in our, in our text today. And so let me continue reading. This is what it says in verse 20. It's talking about Jesus. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, Christian, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Now, here's what we should notice right there is there's, there's, a, there's a shift there in verse 22, right? In that Peter is, has been talking at length about something that takes place sort of internally, right? And that's the first thing we need to know about holiness, is that there's an internal aspect to it, that there's something that the Lord God has done in us, Right? That by His power, He's guarding us through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. That God is working in us as individuals. That there's an internal aspect to our holiness, right? It tells us uh, even in, uh, I believe it's in verse, uh, let me find it here, 17, that if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, right? So that God is looking at us individually in a sense. That there is an internal and individual aspect of our holiness that we should be aware of. He, he goes on to tell us in verse 22 to purify ourselves. So certainly holiness is internal, but it is also eternal, right? Because what does it go on to say in verse 23? That we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So in chapter 1, we begin to understand this idea of our sainthood. We begin to understand what our holiness is comprised of and where it comes from. That we are saints right now. That we're not becoming holy, but that we are holy. Now that's a bit of a false dichotomy, right? In that there is a journey of sanctification, that we do become more like Christ day by day, that we are being transformed into His image and likeness. But what First Peter is telling us is that our holiness right now, because it's the righteousness of Jesus, is immediate. 
And that that designation, that designation of saint, that designation of holy, is an eternal designation. That we are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And so we don't earn our sainthood, we're given our sainthood, and then we're called to act accordingly, right? Which is what starts in verse 22, where it shifts, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So where chapter 1 lays the foundation for what it means for us to be saints, right? What, what, what does it mean to be a saint? Chapter 2 is going to draw us into what it means to then be saints together. So we've seen two things, right? Sainthood, internal work of God, an eternal work of God. But now what we're going to see, starting in verse 22, is that there's an external shift of our holiness, right? That this holiness, that this sainthood works itself out in a sincere brotherly love. That holiness, sainthood, is revealed in the ways in which we love one another, which helps us to make sense of where we kicked off in verse 1 when it says this. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So, again, Paul is using, I mean, sorry, Peter is using a connecting word there, isn't he? He's saying, this is what God has done in your life. This is how he's redeemed you. This is how he's brought you to himself. You should be holy as he is holy. And it works itself out in a sincere brotherly love. So, put away what? Malice, deceit, envy, slander, hypocrisy. Now, I think a, a lot of times we, we read the New Testament, we think, oh man, there's all this, there's this good stuff just about grace and about how God has done everything for us and how there is no lack in the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. And then it's like, but don't do this, 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 or this. And yet, these are not just five sort of happenstance words, sins that Peter just sort of recollected randomly. No, he's saying something very pointed to us in here. Right? He talks about our sainthood. He talks about how our, how our sainthood draws us together as this people with a sincere brotherly love and affection for one another. And then he says, guess what? Our unfruitful ways, those unfruitful ways that he described in chapter 1, the former ignorance, the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, that when we act according to not to our sainthood, but to our flesh, what is old and what is gone. That that doesn't just affect us. That those unfruitful ways affect all of us. You see, when we look at these sins, each individually, apart from just the list, right, where we just kind of read it to get through the verse, when we actually take a look at each one, what we'll begin to notice is that each of these sins happen in the context of relationship. And all of them, to one degree or another, breed relational distance, right? I mean, just think about it. it you know, if, let's just pretend you were born on, or, or you magically appeared on an island in the middle of nowhere. You were the only person on it. It would be very hard to experience things like 
deceit. Now, granted, you can deceive yourself, but that's not how Peter's using that word. It would be hard to slander others or to experience slander if there's no one else there to talk about. This necessitates, these things necessitate a present relationship in which they take place. If there's nobody else to compare yourself to, it's very hard to envy other people, right? So again, what's Peter saying here? The Lord has made you saints, and He's drawn you together as saints. And so we need to put away these sins that will breed relational distance, these things that will impede us from experiencing the fellowship that we've been given as God's saints, God's holy ones, brought together in Christ. And so why does that matter? Why does that matter for for Peter, right? Well, it's This is what he says in in verse 5. He says that these people that have been made saints, right, and that have been made saints together, when they behave that way, right, they don't live into what God is calling them into, which is in verse 5. We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house, that we're being built together, that there's a, a brick and a mortar, and that the mortar is Christ, and that we're being joined to one another, and that when we live into these malicious ways, these envious intents, that that mortar becomes watered down. And so I think what we're seeing here very clearly is that there is absolutely an an internal aspect to what it is that God has done in making us saints, in calling us His holy ones. And certainly that is eternal in that what God decrees comes to pass, that that you're not born again of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, that He will bring the good work that He has started in you to its completion. So there's an eternal aspect, but there's also an external aspect in that our holiness in us living into this identity that we've been graciously given affects our brothers and sisters around us, those who have also been adopted into this family of God by the work of Jesus. And so it's clear that not only are we saints, but we are saints together. But we're not only saints together, we are also saints together for a purpose. And in verse 5, it finishes when it says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're not just saints individually. And we're not just saints together, we're saints together for the glory of God. That's what what verse 5 is telling us. It's telling us that we are drawn together, we are made saints and made saints together collectively so that we might offer acceptable sacrifices to God. Sacrifices that are made acceptable through Jesus, just in case we were about to get confused there. Right? Essentially, this verse is saying something that we have said thousands of times here at Sojourn. And so I'm going to say it again. It has always been God's intent to have for Himself a people, a people not only to whom He would reveal Himself, but a people through whom He reveals Himself to the world. That's always been God's intent from day one. And here we see it repeated again. 
We've been made saints. We are His people now. We belong to Him. We've been drawn into a collective group of saints. We're saints together, and we're saints together so that the glory of God might be revealed, again, not only to us, but through us. God is glorified when His people glorify Him. And so in saving us internally, in adopting us eternally, in growing us up towards Him and towards one another externally, God is making His name famous, His name glorious, His name magnificent in the world. So it's important to Peter, and it's important to the Holy Spirit who's, who's inspiring these words in him, that we are united under this common identity, that we are, that we are saints. It's important to him because it's integral to what God is doing in the world. So let's go back to what I said at the beginning, which is that the mission and vision of Sojourn is that we would join the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. So we're not trying to make anything new. We're not trying to be anything novel. We're trying to join what it is that God is doing. And you know what God is doing? He's making for himself a people, a people to whom and through whom he reveals himself to the world. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to be a part of. That's what we want to experience. That's the identity that we want to live into, the reality that God is pushing and moving history towards and to. Is that not the culmination of all things in Revelation chapter 5? Is that not the glorious vision that we look at and go, God, I can't wait to hear that sound when all of the angels and all the saints around the throne gather and with one voice proclaim in every tongue and from every tribe that, the Lamb is holy and worthy of our worship. If we want to join in with what God is doing, then we will join in with God's people and we will live out our identity as saints in that context. That's what eternity is, folks. That's what heaven is. So let me make the case for two things that I think are integral to, to growing this kind of relationship, to living into this kind of community, this kind of fellowship for us this morning. This fellowship that is defined by and rooted in the idea of our sainthood. And the first thing is this, this, this necessity for relationship for our holiness, this ex external aspect where our holiness not only bleeds out onto other people, but their holiness and what God is doing in them bleeds onto us. I think one of the, the first things that is going to be necessary for that, and we're just going to get real practical here, is this. I think that physical proximity matters if we want to experience sainthood together, if we want to experience life together in light of Jesus then our physical proximity is going to matter. And I don't mean like, you know, go give someone a hug or make someone uncomfortable in like the personal space bubble. What I'm saying is living close in terms of actual physical distance, like where you live in this city matters to how you will experience relationship. The level and the depth of relationship that you will experience. Let me explain what I mean, because I know that, that, can, that that's probably a, a hard turn, right? Um, 
the, the New Yorker, which is an a, a pub, online publication, um, wrote an article about how um, sort of this, this new urbanism works, where we've got uh, these, these suburbs and these really long commutes and cars are sort of, sort of enabling us to live in a way that we've never lived like before, right? And they studied the effects of, of that on our relationships, on our relational selves, right? And this is what the article says. It says, for every 10 minutes that you commute, you will have 10% fewer relational connections. Furthermore, if your commute is 40 minutes or longer, you are 40% more likely to get a divorce. Now, so what is the New Yorker telling us, right? And again, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to scare you into like, you know, anything. I'm just, but, but it's telling us something that I think is true. It's telling us that physical proximity matters if we want to experience relational proximity. That relationship is affected by physical distance. That if we want relationships, and if we want deep relationships, and if we want life-giving relationships, and if we want relationships that are forming us into the likeness and image of Christ, then we'll need to live close to one another. Let me just talk this out personally, right? Like, let me, I'll show you what I mean just by looking at my own life, right? Um, it's harder for me to hide from my wife than it is for me to hide from my staff. It's harder for me to hide from my staff relationships than it is for me to hide from my neighborhood parish relationships. It's harder for me to hide from my neighborhood parish relationships than it is for me to hide from my neighbor that lives across the neighborhood. It's harder for me to hide from my neighborhood relationships than it is for me to hide from my college friends and those relationships that live in Kingwood. Do you see what I'm saying? So as the circle gets wider, as the distance grows farther, my relationship is absolutely, my relational level of engagement with that person is directly correlated to that difference. If we want the kind of relationships that root out sin like malice, envy, deceit, slander, if we want the kind of relationships that force us to consider others, as Philippians chapter 2 so, so greatly describes for us, then we'll need a degree of physical proximity. If we want to reach deeply into the needs of the people in our neighborhood, we need to be their neighbors. It's hard to love your neighbor if you're not their neighbor, is what I'm saying. Shouldn't be revolutionary. So proximity matters, which is why we've, we've always, again, we've always just said we're, we're not a church for everywhere. We're a church for Montrose. We're a church for this place. We want to live here. We want to serve here. We want to be known here. We want to care about the people here. We want to care about what happens in this neighborhood here. We want to be neighbors to the people here so that we can serve them, so that we can engage them relationally in a way that goes beyond a weekend gathering. Proximity matters. And so hear me when I say this. I'm not... I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to make, if you don't live in Montrose, I'm not saying this isn't the church for you. That's not, that's not at all what I'm saying. But I am saying that the degree of relationship that you will experience is impacted by the level of physical distance. 
If you want to minister to a neighborhood, if you want to minister to a people, it behooves you to move in. After all, Jesus didn't commute from heaven every day. The second thing I'll say is this. So I think proximity matters to, to, to experiencing this kind of life together, where not only are we made more holy, but the neighborhood is introduced to the glory of God. I also think that longevity matters when it comes to that. Right? Here's what I mean by that. If relationships are the soil in which we are growing, then to relocate over and over hampers that growth. Now, Sermon prep always takes me weird places on the internet, but um, <clears throat> I, ended up, I ended up looking up, what does it take, right, to transplant a tree to another location and, and ensure that, like, it's, it's healthy and that it continues to grow and all of those things? Well, the fact of the matter is that if you grow and plant a tree and then you relocate it over and over, it will simply not grow as well if you just left it in one spot and watered it regularly. I read some tips, in fact, for replanting a tree, and here's what came up, and I think it's just staggering. First is this. After removing the tree from its original location, replant it as soon as possible. The longer the tree is out of the ground, the less likely it will survive the move. Why do college students stop going to church when they go to college? Well, I don't know. Here's the second thing. If the tree you are moving has low branches, consider tying them up with twine before digging. It's saying you've got you've to do all of this work to collect and to cultivate. Third thing, if it is a fruit tree, the tree will probably not produce for a significant amount of time. What's it saying? That tree's not going to be healthy for a while. It's not going to be able to do what it was created to do. It's not going to produce fruit. In case you haven't heard that metaphor in the Bible before. All right? If we want life-giving, fruit-producing relationships, we'll need time to let those roots grow deep. This is what makes church hopping so dangerous because it never con- confronts you, right? You're happy to stay in that, in that context for the spring and the summer, but we don't want to endure the fall and the winter. When really it's through the fall and the winter that we'll experience new life and spring again and summer again. And it's through the hardships of the fall and the winter. It's through the continually dying of self and the resurrection in the spring. It's an experience, the, in experiencing the death of ourselves and the resurrection of new life in us time and time again. And through those difficulties that we will experience fruit and health and strength and endurance. I think proximity matters to each other, and I think that longevity matters with each other if we're going to experience these kinds of relationships. Now, some of you may be asking a question, right, at this point. Um, you know, I'm all for the, the depth of relationships thing, and I'm all about the longevity thing, but look, what, what if I'm not in Houston for that long? That's a question I still ask myself. Uh, if I'm honest, when I stepped into the, even entered into like the crazy world of I might plan a church, my first choice was not like, hey, Houston sounds great. I really want to sweat all year round. That's, 
just kind of, yeah, want to live in a perpetual sauna. It wasn't. But here's, here's how I want to live. I want to live today like I'll be here the rest of my life. And here's, the, here's what's true for you. You're not guaranteed tomorrow, and I don't mean that to be morbid or anything like that. In fact, I think it should be something that frees us up from always being worried about what's next. Look, the Lord may very well move you, but until then, be who you are, where you are, what? For the glory of God. Be who you are, where you are, for the glory of God. And when we commit to these two things, when we commit to proximity and when we commit to longevity, not only will we look different, not only will we begin to experience this collective sainthood, this collective holiness, this this place where peace rules instead of malice, envy, deceit, slander, right? Not only will that happen by God's grace and through the power of His Spirit, but by God's grace and through the power of His Spirit, Montrose might just begin to look different. Right, let's, let's be honest. And I'm going I'm to speak um, candidly, and I'm going to speak with obvious bias, but that's okay. Montrose is the best neighborhood in Houston, hands down. It is. I got an amen in the first gathering, so y'all are slacking. But um, that's literally like the only amen I've ever gotten um, <laughs> to that. So, great. <clears throat> but here's what that means. And I think, honestly, this is broadly applicable, not just to, to Montrose, but I think it's applicable to Houston in general. Montrose is often not the hot guy, the hot girl that we want to get with for a season, but we don't want to settle down with. Right? He or she is great while they're still physically attractive and while they still sort of meet all of our needs and while we're still feeling sort of fulfilled with just enough distance to not really have to feel committed or invested in anything that's happening in the neighborhood, just so long as it's sort of, you know, pleasurable. Here's what happens when we commit to proximity and when we commit to longevity. Maybe just maybe we'll stop using Montrose and we'll start loving Montrose. All right, those are two different things. It's different to love Montrose because it meets all of your, your needs. It, meets, it, it, it fits perfectly within your Instagram filter, right? It's different to love Montrose for that than to love Montrose not for the sake of what it can give me, but for the sake of what God has called me to give it by His Spirit. To love it for the sake of seeing God redeem it. And it's when we do that that we'll start caring about what our neighborhood needs rather than about what our neighborhood can give us. And look, the same is true of the church. And the same is true of our church, right? Don't let this just be the place where you come and it's kind of like that It's the city church that was cool for a while, and I I felt hip going to it, which is not at all our goal, (laughs) right? But come here and invest yourself in what this place 
needs in a gospel sense. Because I promise you, not only, not only will you look different in the internal work of holiness that God is doing, not only will you be more alivened to the eternal nature of what God is doing in and through you, not only will you experience the external benefits and collective holiness that is being stirred together, but you will be a part of seeing this neighborhood saturated with and changed for the glory of God for Him and for our joy. Now, if you, were pay- if you were paying attention, you probably noticed that I've really only given you three points about our holiness so far, and that's that there's an internal aspect, there's an eternal aspect, there's an external aspect, and here's the last one. It's gradual. And here's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says. So we put away all of these things in light of our new identity together in Christ. And so, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's it telling us? It's telling us that this kind of work, that seeing these things change in us, that seeing ourselves grow as saints, becoming holy as He is holy, is a lifelong, gradual endeavor. That if my 15-month-old daughter looked like you look right now, we would go, that's weird. It's going to take her years. It's going to take her years. Same is true of us. Our our own holiness, our collective holiness, and the holiness of this neighborhood, the holiness of this city, it's going to take time. It's going to take years. And you know how it's going to happen? Read verse 4. It's going to happen as you come to him. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Here's what Peter's telling us. For us to understand what God has done in us internally, to understand what He's done eternally, to understand what He is doing externally, and to walk in the gradual nature of all of this with all of its frustrations, with all of its difficulties, with all of its summers and springs, but also with all of its falls and its winters. That those things happen and that they come to pass as we come to Him. That as we come to Jesus, the living stone that was rejected by men, but in the sight of God is chosen and precious, that we then ourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, you wonder why we talk so much about Jesus. You wonder why we say every weekend that as Christians, we're all about Jesus. It's because it's as we come to Him that these things become a reality in us. It's as we come to Him that these things become a reality through us. And so if we are to be that people for God's own possession, that people not only to whom He reveals Himself, but that people through whom He reveals Himself to the world, then it necessitates, brothers and sisters, that we come to Him. That we come to Him. 
the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, that living stone that we stand upon for our sainthood, for our holiness, both individually and together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you for, again, the opportunity to be gathered together with your people. Lord, as much as we belong to you, we, we belong in that same degree to one another, eternally. And Lord, without barrier. And so as we come to the table this morning, Father, I do pray that you will um, speak to us very tangibly about our new identity as saints. Father, that you would remind us of this great unity that we have. And that you would remind us, Father, that the work that you are doing in this world is a work to and through a people, not just the individual. So, Lord, be our help this morning, and Lord, by your Spirit, do these things over time. Give us the strength and endurance and the patience and the grace that are all wrapped up in this glorious gospel and that have been given to us. Let us give those to others so that our neighborhood and our city and our world might be introduced to a new and glorious humanity in which there is peace because its ruler is the Prince of Peace. Almighty God, everlasting Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.